In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello, and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we've got some great topics coming at you. We'll give you a short update on the Trump impeachment with some comments on some crazy stuff that has been said. Um, and then we'll go into talking about um, some of the larger implications of the Trump presidency beyond him being a criminal president, but the actual things he's done. And then we'll uh, wrap it up by talking about some structural problems with our electoral system in the United States. Uh, also, before we get started, some uh, brief housekeeping things. Uh, next week, Michael will not be here. And uh, Jess, who you heard uh, in our last debate breakdown, she will be filling in. Also, the week after that, we're going to be having our first interview. Very exciting. Yes. He was a former candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates, and he has recently written a book about... Confederate statues. Uh, so a man named Larry Yates will be joining us, and we're really excited to have him. So be sure to tune in for both of those awesome episodes. Uh, this is episode 15, Michael. Mm-hmm. We are old enough to have a learner's permit. Wow. Yeah. We grew up so fast. So um, I will be sorry to miss our 16th episode. I will miss you all dearly. I will be out in um, in California shredding the gnar. Uh in Squaw Valley, so you know they they he he's making a weird finger sign, uh, but yeah. the audience can't see that. <laughs> so uh, you know, hang tight. So Nathan, what is our theme for today? Well, Michael, today's theme is rhetorical history. What's that? So rhetorical history it, with regard to uh, how communication scholars study it, and this is a very oversimplified version of it that we will focus on for this episode is studying the idea of using history in order to make rhetorical points. So there are a few premises to understand when talking about rhetorical history. First off, whenever you invoke history, you are not actually talking about the historical event that you seem to be talking about. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is basically that, um, say, take the Crucible, for example, the play The Crucible, that was invoking rhetorical history. It was talking about the Salem witch trials. Or was it? People people who have studied that know that what they were actually trying to talk about was McCarthyism. They were trying to invoke the ideas and the fear-mongering and the witch-hunting of the Salem witch trials and apply it to McCarthyism. So when you do use history in order to talk about the now, in essence, you are removing the historical action from its context. You see, when it comes to history, it can't happen again the exact same way. So you're never going to get a perfect representation of history when it is used in order to relate to something that is happening today. It has to be embellished. It has to be rhetorically uh, cleaned up. Yeah, by definition, it's anachronistic. And that's the difference between like listening to a boring history lecture at your university and hearing an inspiring speech about like the struggles of a people in, in years past. Absolutely. So 
This is often used by various presidential candidates, politicians, any speech givers. They invoke history, the history of the past. They say, the founding fathers fought for this and therefore you should fight for this. But the struggles of the time of the founding fathers are a lot different from the struggles of today. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from history, but it does mean that we need to recognize that historical events happened in their own context mm -hmm. that were not necessarily the same context of today. And therefore they might have limited applicability to today's context. So, you know, for example, we'll talk today about impeachment and like a lot of the discussion around impeachment has has been focused on what the founding fathers intended with impeachment. Impeachment. What does bribery really mean back in eighteen or seventeen eighty seven? And like, what do they really mean by misdemeanors? Some people think it's just misdeeds. Some people assume that it's when you haven't risen, uh, crime hasn't risen to the level of a felony. Arguments about history made on an oversimplified basis as a rhetorical device are taking that history out of context. And it's really tempting when you listen to those arguments to think, wow, like that that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, if it's if it's not truly bribery in the in the founder's sense and it's not truly a, a legal misdemeanor, then I guess it just doesn't apply. When history is used as a narrative, it is an argument based purely on emotion. When history is used as a collection of facts, then you can argue that it is an argument based on facts and data which is interesting because one of the reasons that like constitutionalism has gained such momentum is actually like originalist jurisprudence which is where normally the supreme court interprets current laws and statutes in and attempts to interpret them in the constitutional context of like the founders and if so that seems like a really popular philosophy these days but if you actually go into and talk to legal scholars originalism is almost universally rejected as a jurisprudence it doesn't make any sense because what it's doing is it's making a rhetorical argument what it's doing is saying that you know we need to interpret this interpret this document in this previous context because but interpret it using today's like words, essentially. And it's basically pretending that a couple hundred years of history and legal development and evolution just never happened. But but intuitively, it's it's an, an easy and simplified historical rhetoric, rhetorical device, because you look at a document that is only a few pages long, like the Constitution, and that's way less intimidating than hundreds and, and thousands of pages of legal text about the evolution of laws in this country. And all of a sudden, you're able to appeal to the masses because they can understand it. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and apply that to our first story. So, Michael, what are we talking about first? I'm sure that our audience will never guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, as usual, we are going to be addressing impeachment. Now, we'll keep this summary a bit short. First of all, Nathan, where are we? We're at the point where uh, both sides have really prosecuted their cases. We're going to be hearing final arguments uh, tomorrow, which is Tuesday, which by the time this comes out is today, so you will have already heard them. Uh, the final vote will be on Wednesday, but there are some extra steps that have been taken that I think that uh, that make this particular impeachment hearing different from other impeachment hearings that we're going to talk a little bit about. 
Yeah. So one of the most important things is what just happened after all the opening arguments, which spanned a few days, um, is that they had an up or down vote, which is a vote whether to accept witnesses and documents. And so basically, as we discussed last week, in order to have witnesses and documents, um, the Democrats needed a there needed to be a majority vote. So 51 senators needed to vote in favor of witnesses and documents, which would require at least four Republican senators to join all of the Democratic senators. Yeah. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, So I feel like it's kind of sad that we need to give credit to people for doing the bare minimum of integrity. Yeah, we're just just finding out some more facts about, you know, during a trial. If you think someone is innocent, you want there to be more evidence so that they can be declared as innocent. But that being said, let's go ahead and give credit to every single Democrat, as well as Mitt Romney from Utah and Susan Collins from Maine for voting to have a fair trial. And no credit to Lisa Murkowski or Lamar Alexander. Or any of the other Republicans who are accessories in a cover-up, and it is disgusting, it is completely partisan, and look, look, if you're going to vote to acquit Donald Trump, I understand you're probably going to do that, you know, I can't expect Republicans to have that much integrity, but it can, but I think it's at least reasonable to want them to have as much evidence in there as possible, especially if their main argument has been, oh, this should never have happened in the first place. This should never have happened because he's totally innocent and it was a perfect phone call. Yeah. So, you know what I think the real motivation behind this was? Senators just can't handle having to sit down and shut up for hours and hours (laughs) on end. Not being able to speak is like probably the reason that they wanted to end this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's interesting because... Lamar Alexander spoke <laughs> out <laughs> spoke Sorry, out about uh, um, why he voted against witnesses and documents. And it's funny, you might you might think, oh well, maybe he just maybe he thought that this was such an outrageous claim that nothing happened and so it's impossible like there's no reason to need more information. Nope, that's not at all it. In fact, he it's exactly the opposite. He basically said, we don't need more evidence to determine what he did. Because he's de- definitely, he definitely did it. There's no question in his mind that what he did, like that what he's accused of, he did. Which, to be clear, was extorting a foreign government using the powers of the presidency in order to take down a political rival to cheat an election. Yeah. Which is a host of crimes. Like withholding, as we discussed last week, withholding the aid from Ukraine was a crime. As we discussed uh, in previous episodes, accepting something of value or attempting to receive something of value from yeah, a foreign national to get to aid in a um, election is a crime. Um, there are, and a whole host of others. And on top of all that, it's not necessary for the president to have committed a host of illegal acts to be impeached. Even though he did. Even though he did. Um, It says, you know, bribery, treason, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. But what is in bounds is abuse of power, um, abuse of the the office and the powers therein. And and so it's not actually necessary that it be a bunch of illegal things. It could just be him inappropriately leveraging his power as the president. Yeah. Uh, And once again, I will remind everybody... Um, Republicans impeached Bill Clinton for cheating on his wife. Donald Trump cheated on his wife and betrayed the country, and Republicans wouldn't even call witnesses in his trial. Yeah. 
And so what Lamar Alexander said was that he definitely did all of that. And that's definitely inappropriate for a president, but it's not impeachable. And he said some some strange things, but they are really aligned with the other Republican arguments, which, which you know, Republicans like Lindsey Graham and others came out and said, yep, Lamar Alexander is, is speaking for us. And he said, you know, the Senate reflects the country, which is actually not true. The House reflects the country. <laughs> and the Senate can't tear up the ballots of this election, which is a, like a totally erroneous argument. Yeah, which we th- live in a democracy, but we also live in a republic, which means that no one is above the law. So if an elected official breaks the law, they should be removed. Yeah. And you can, you, if you're interested in what the founder said, let's, let's talk about some, uh, rhetorical history, <laughs> some rhetorical history <laughs> in Federalist number 10, James Madison wrote about, um, how the structure of the government could mitigate the negative effects of parties. Because one of the, one of the flags that, um, the Republicans have thrown on the play here is that, um, this is all just a partisan hack job. And, you know, let's address that in order to mitigate the effects of having parties in national politics. Madison wrote that there were two structural components. One is the principle of impartiality, that a person can't be a judge in their own case. So basically, Trump, your executive power does not allow you to prevent people from being influences or from being witnesses, and you can't use executive privilege to prevent this trial from going forward, which he attempted to do, obstruction of Congress. Um, And two, republicanism. So basically, Rather than relying on the direct control of a democratic people, you rely on principled intermediaries, representatives in the Congress and the House, so who are more equipped to deliver on the goods of society than a direct vote. So by diffusing that power from democracy and putting it in a Republican context, like small r Republican, yeah. um, you are allowing the government and society to function better. So basically, Lamar Alexander's point that you can't tear up the ballots of this election is exactly the opposite of what the founders intended, if you care about that. Yeah. I think it is kind of funny, though, that... So the Republican line, at least the, the Trumpist Republican line, has been that it was a perfect phone call. Yeah. And I just I just imagine like a conversation between... Trump and Lamar Alexander, where Lamar, Lamar Alexander is just like, um, okay, so it wasn't a perfect phone call, but like it wasn't impeachable. That's the line. And Trump just being like, no, 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 it's a perfect phone call. You got to say it was a perfect phone call. And he's just like, shut up. I'm trying to get you out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and to sum up his comments, Lamar's comments, he said that we can't impeach him because the people still potentially want him to be president. That's, that's not how it works. And they don't. What... Like he is the lowest approval rating of any republic of any yeah. president in recent history. Like what? And so the cra- like the craziest part to me about that is how bold-faced it is. You're basically saying because our candidate is popular, we can't Which afford to impeach him. Yeah. Because Which he's, he's not. the best because we think he's the best Republican candidate for president, we can't impeach him. Yeah. And so basically it means that you can't impeach any president who is eligible for a second term in like the last year of their presidency of their yeah. presidency. It's yeah. absolutely crazy. But to Nathan's point, that goalpost has been moving 
throughout this conversation. It started off as a perfect call, and then it went to, oh, but it wasn't a perfect call, but there was no quid pro quo. And then it went to, yeah, there was quid pro quo, but that's fine. And then it went to, okay, that's not fine, but it's not illegal. And then it went to, okay, that is illegal, but I don't care. Yeah, exactly. And one of the contributors to this was famous law dude, Alan Dershowitz. (laughs) So I feel like we here at the Perspectrum need to come up with a new award. Like we have our ass hat of the week award, but I feel like we need to come up with a name for dumbest argument made in an official capacity. Mm. So feel free to reach out to us if you think that there's a, you know, there's a name and award. You know what? We could call it the Dershowitz Award. Oh, honor him. Just just from now on, like honoring this argument from now how on. About, how about something how about something a little more pejorative? How about the D-Bag Award? The D-Bag Award. <laughs> <laughs> short for Dershowitz. Short, short, short for Dershowitz, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so here was his argument. So he was talking about how every politician thinks that their reelection is in the public good. So with that in mind, he said, quote, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, it cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. So what he's saying is that if a politician breaks the law to get reelected, that it's okay because in their mind, their reelection is in the public interest. And they can't be impeached for doing something that is in that is in the public interest. That is the dumbest argument I have ever heard in my life. Yeah. Like, when I first saw that, like, when I first saw that headline, I was like, oh, Onion. Obviously, Onion. I mean, that is, that is ludicrous. And then it said NBC, and I was like, okay, had to have been taken out of context. There's no way he actually said that. And then I watched the video... And he said that. And I was just like, I, I, I was speechless. I mean, I, the fact that this is what we're up against, these arguments are what we're up against. And Republicans refuse to even vote to have any more witnesses when this is their side is ridiculous. Now, let, and let's, let's talk about how ridiculous that part is. There have been 15 impeachment trials in the Senate. So keep in mind, impeachment is not just for presidents. It can also be used for uh, very, various other offices, you know, like Supreme Court justices, whatnot. Um, there have been 15 impeachment trials ha- held in the Senate. This is the only one in which they refused to call any witnesses. And this is their side. This is what we're up against. And it makes sense that you would never have a trial without calling witnesses. What would be the point? Like, there's at what point is enough information? Like, is is it just too much information? We just don't want any more. Yeah, the the Alan Dershowitz argument breaks down in like every possible way, and we won't spend too much time on it because it is just so inane on its face. But let's let's think about just an example, which is obviously flies in the face. So basically, he said that like. Okay, politicians are always acting in both their own interest and they can be acting in the public interest. So so basically whenever they're trying to get reelected, of course they're acting in their own interest, but anytime it's also in the public interest, so not purely exclusively in their own interest, then their actions are probably fine. Except that is just not an argument that comports with the law. 
or history or history and and it's not an argument that's like ever been made before he lit it was like it was like sitting in a class and some loud dude in the back like comes up with this crazy off the wall argument that he says really loud and then like starts to take over the conversation because people are like this argument is I, like other the people that agree with him think it's great and the people that don't think it's stupid because yeah. it is it's like what if our brain was actually made of peanuts and that's why if a person's allergic to peanuts they die bro bro <laughs> <laughs> like I, I i don't know I, I i picture i picture alan dershowitz like smoking a blunt in yeah. the uh <laughs> in the back of the classroom saying crap like that here's an example of a time when you would be acting in both the public interest in getting reelected, if you accept that argument, and also in your private interest, and when it would be illegal, receiving something of value from a foreign government to help you get elected. Yeah. If they were to give him, if they were to give him money, it would be a clear and obvious illegal case. Of course, because. Okay, great. It's like helping him get reelected, but it's also flagrantly illegal. And it's it, it is just as clearly illegal in this case. Yeah. And even an even easier, more parallel example is Nixon. Mm-hmm. When he was spy when he uh was when his people were spying on the Democratic headquarters, of course that was to help him get reelected. So do you think that back then like, I mean, look, he, he made the really dumb argument of if the president does it, it's not illegal, which didn't hold up then and it doesn't hold up now. But if he had said, oh, well, but it's OK, because because they did it in order to get me reelected, it was OK. Yeah. And if Trump had received a bribe of like any money at all, he would totally have been he would totally be able to be impeached. It would be a very obvious and clear case. Even like even like ten thousand dollars. Damaging information about the Bidens or a public announcement of investigation would be so much more valuable than that. And yet, because it could potentially overlap with the public interest in him getting reelected, it's totally fine. Totally imbounds. Absolutely crazy. So anyway, that's enough about impeachment. And now time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So as you know, every week we like to bring facts or things you can keep in mind to make the world a little bit of a better place. So Nathan, what's our tip for good this week? Well, our tip for good is to clean up after your dog. Man, that is a great tip. If you, if you live in an urban area. I mean, if you live out in the country where like you have uh, a bunch of land, a forest where your dog poops all the time, I mean, that's one thing. But if you're living in a more urban area where people walk around or other dogs walk around, it's important to clean up after your dog for several reasons. Also, it's fine if it's on your land, I guess. But like, even if you're, you're in a rural area and like someone's like pooping in someone else's front yard that's not cool yeah that's how you get shot (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah so one thing to think about that i want to focus on for this tip is how it affects other dogs specifically service dogs so i've said this on the podcast before and if you know me in in uh, my personal life you already know this i have a service dog her name is blake she's a yellow lab she's really cute and i love her that takes big poops she takes big poops but she also um, is a copperphage. She eats poop. She has this gene that makes her really like to eat poop. 
And when she is walking through, uh, you know, when, when I'm giving her a walk, when she's off duty, um, she likes poop. Now I try my best to keep her away from it. I've trained, you know, there are certain cues that I've trained her to keep her away from it, but for the sake of her health, when other people leave their dogs poop there, um, it can sometimes be problematic, especially if there's, because uh, I don't know what your dog might have, if your dog might have some kind of infection or whatnot. And there I am concerned because my service dog, who I depend on in my personal life, in my in my professional life, may have just eaten something that could make her sick. Um, and actually, one uh, another thing that happened one time is uh, I got blamed for someone else's dog's poop. Um, this was actually when I was living in, uh, when I was in college and I was living in a townhouse community where there was a homeowners association and there was a requirement to clean poop off of uh, your front yard. Someone else's dog pooped on my front yard and, uh, they tried to find me for it. Now I challenged it with the homeowners association and ultimately I actually joined the homeowners association so that they wouldn't do that to me or anybody else. But that caused me to be blamed for it, even though as a service dog partner, I always pick up my dog's poop. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of reasons why you should clean up after your dog. That's just another one. So it's a pretty easy thing to do. And if you're going to be a dog owner, you have additional responsibilities. So if your dog goes to the bathroom in a public space, especially in an urban space, if it's not your property, always clean it up. It has bigger effects than you know. just finished talking about impeachment. The important point to think about for impeachment is not to despair in how terrible everything is, but to recognize that the Senate is not going to remove Donald Trump. We got to do that. At the end of the day, he's not, he was never going to be taken down by the Senate. Yes, he should have print, you know, on principle, but he wasn't going to be. So what we have to do is we have to vote him out. Because even beyond his criminal activity, there are policies that his administration is currently doing, is trying to incorporate and has been incorporating, that are hurting people. So today we want to focus a little bit on how some of his recent policy proposals and policy changes are affecting the immigrant community. So, Michael. Yeah, because the common narrative that I've heard a lot is that Trump at least on the liberal side, is that Trump has been a harmful but ultimately not very effective president. And people say that because he hasn't gotten much legislation through. Like the Republican um, Congress, back when it was totally held by Republicans, didn't make very much progress. He got the tax cuts done. Yep. And, and he managed Trump. to kick a few million people off of health insurance. That's true. That was a, that was a big accomplishment. And but the thing is that in addition to those minor, but really impactful legislative changes, he's made a lot of other changes and had a lot of influence that we wanted to touch on because I think that talking about Trump as an ineffective president undermines the narrative that he is a very very harmful president. He's not just harmful because he's a buffoon. He's a harmful in real ways that that deprive people of things they need and ultimately end in like misery and death so let's talk about the supreme court 
<laughs> so last week, the United States Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, um, reversed a lower court's injunction on a Trump um, rule that uh, restricted immigration and applicants for green cards for non-citizens who receive or are likely to receive um, public benefits. And so basically what the rule says was is that... Um, you know, immigration officials are allowed to um, deny changes of legal immigration status or um, applications for immigration to people um, based on whether they think they will um, receive a public good. And this is called the public charge rule. And what it did, what the Trump rule change did was expand the programs that qualify as a public charge. And so... Um, these uh, officials can now restrict people from immigrating if they think they are, quote, more likely than not to become a public charge and receive things like food stamps or Medicaid or even Section 8 housing vouchers. So, you know those words on the Statue of Liberty? You know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. You know, the, those words that uh, Trump administration official Ken Cuccinelli tried to change to your huddled masses who can stand on their own two feet. He, did, did, do you remember when that, did you see when that happened? That's absolutely Yeah, insane. he actually tried to pretend that that's what was written on the Statute of Liberty. So apparently all of that is complete bull crap, Yeah, which I guess also kind of brings us to the idea of rhetorical history. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, Ken Cuccinelli trying to change it and the Trump administration right straight up ignoring it. Yeah, exactly. And so it gives officials tremendous latitude because they can basically determine on their own if they think a candidate is more likely than not to receive 12 months of any of those benefits within any three-year period. And so it's just this huge prediction that there's no way they could actually make, and and but there's no way that other people can disprove. And so it puts immigrants at their mercy and at a tremendous disadvantage. And so the Department of Homeland Security estimates that this will affect more than 180,000 people who already live in the United States and will seek to change their immigration status, and then hundreds of thousands of immigration applicants. And the Migration Policy Institute estimates that nearly half of U.S. non-citizen population could be at risk of a public charge determination, up from the current 3%. So a tremendous increase in the people that could be at risk of being denied change in their immigration status. So why is this a problem? One of the main issues is that it's basically a wealth test. And it not only is a wealth test, but it, it disproportionately impacts um, people from poor countries and non-white people. And so, yeah, it's, it's undermining of our, like the diversity of our nation and undermining like the opportunity for people to come here and build better lives. And it is kind of interesting that it's 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 definitely an admission that uh the whole pick yourself up by your bootstraps is complete BS mm. because if you were to if you were to think, "Oh, well, in the United States, everybody is born with the exact same opportunity to get ahead and yet you're saying oh well because you're poor you can't possibly get ahead you're admitting that there's a problem in the united states with inequality based on where you start so trickle down economics is bs the whole pick yourself up by your bootstraps is bs and they're admitting that yeah and it's funny because it's so it's so clear that it's not about like the cost 
of these public benefits for a couple of reasons. One, immigrants are already prevented, for the most part, for participating in most federal benefits programs for at least the first five years of their residency. Like, they're just not eligible. So it's not like it's like you're trying to solve a huge cost thing. So it's it's so clear that it's so much more about wealth and whiteness in restricting this legal immigration. It's Again, it's not about illegal immigration anymore. They're trying to limit legal immigration. Yeah. And also, let's look at what this all effect this ultimately does have on the economy. Um, now, before I say this, I would like to make one quick point. I do think it is kind of depressing that when we have these conversations, one of the first thoughts that we go to is, okay, how does this affect the economy? You know, the arguments that people often focus on when talking about the importance of immigration are often practical ones of economics and not human ones of you are depriving people of resources because they were born in another country. Yeah, so, you heard that a bunch with the DACA stuff. Yeah, like, so, oh no, these are high achievers. They're the top performers. That's why we value them. Which so is just not the, the case. most. So to be clear, the most important reason why this is a terrible policy is because it is hurting people. It is hurting people that deserve help. We are harming our fellow humans. But beyond that, it is destructive to our own economy. So according to a report in 2017 from the National Academics of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, it is true that first-generation immigrants cost the United States more than native-born Americans. According to the report, they cost approximately uh, $1,600 per person annually. However, second-generation immigrants, so their kids, are actually the strongest fiscal and economic contributors in the United States. They contribute on average 1700 per person per year to put that into perspective natural born citizens and third generation immigrants contribute on average 1300 per year so second generation immigrants contribute far more than the money that you invest in the first generation immigrants mm -hmm. so all you're doing ultimately is punishing people that wanted to come to this country for another life and depriving yourself, hurting our own economy by missing out on the potential revenue from the second generation immigrants. And that's just comparing their overall uh, contribution in dollars individually to like an average American. But the reality is also that they, they pose a um, significant economic benefit based on the growth of the labor population. To illustrate this point, Joel uh, Pracken of Macroeconomic Advisors estimates that if American cut, America cut legal immigration in half, it would reduce the rate of economic growth in the United States by 12.5%. Basically, without immigrants contributing to labor supply, the majority of post-recession economic growth from 2011 to 2016 would just have been wiped out. The chief global strategist of Morgan Stanley said, quote, in the past decade, population growth, including immigration, has accounted for roughly half of the potential economic growth rate in the United States. You hear the, the argument that immigrants coming to the United States is a net negative, even, even just if they were coming in and being the exact same contributors, is a total red herring. So on top of that, Trump has done a lot of other really negative stuff. And we'll go into some of those things in kind of some service level detail. 
So last week, his administration over announced an overhaul to Medicare funding that would basically provide Medicare um, to states as a block grant, if they prefer, and cap spending, which basically means that this program that covers 70 million people would be limited in spending on the state level, which is a huge component of overall Medicare funding. He's also appointed a record number or a record rate of federal court judges. So in the first three years, he appointed 46 circuit court judges compared to Obama's 55 in eight years. And his judges are generally hostile to LGBTQ rights. There's 77% of them are male, 82% of them are white, and 14% of them are rated as unqualified by the American Bar Association. So they're low quality, like like very conservative-focused, non-diverse judge, judges. And also, let's not forget, you know, to your Medicare point, he ran promising not to cut Medicare. He made a big deal out of that, the fact that he was the only presidential candidate in the Republican primary that was promising not to cut Medicare. So also his signature legislation, 2017 uh, Federal Tax Cut and Jobs Act, has benefited almost exclusively the wealthy class and corporations, some to the middle class, but has done nothing for people that are um, in the lower economic levels of the society and has cost significantly more money to the deficit. It has simply just blown up our deficit. And mostly that's because that money has not been reinvested into the economy. Because when you hand people checks for millions of dollars, they don't turn around and change their whole CapEx plan. They put it away for a rainy day. Yeah. And he's decreased federal regulation of Wall Street, which increases the risk should we face a recession. And the SEC has been bringing fewer actions on regulations that are still in place. So they're not even enforcing them as stringently as they usually do. There's also been a huge increase in fossil fuel production and a significant reduction in environmental regulation, which is hurting air and water quality. A team at Carnegie Mellon University estimated that 10,000 more people died in 2018 due to air pollution than did in 2016. People are literally dying, not just because they're not getting medical care, but because his administration is contributing to making the air worse to breathe. And on top of that, tens of thousands of people have lost their health insurance and hundreds of thousands have lost access to SNAP. Donald Trump is not just a terrible president because he's a raging buffoon. He's a terrible president because his policies are hurting people. So let's vote him out. So now time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, this week is Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. And this is personal to me, as all politicians say in every speech ever, because I actually used to live in Iowa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she was the senator representing my area. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, Jess uh, actually called her a lot and mm -hmm. very frequently got ignored by her staffers. Wow. So, so this is personal. This is personal. This is personal. Yeah. <laughs> so you know how Republicans are about to vote to let Donald Trump get away with cheating in an election. Mm -hmm. And you know how they also voted to make sure that there were no witnesses uh, called upon to testify in the, in the impeachment trial in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. So she believes that if Joe Biden were to become president, 
that he could be impeached for his Ukraine stuff. What? Basically for the fact that his son worked for a Ukraine company. And yeah, you can say that um, potentially because his last name was Biden, he got that job. But there was nothing that Joe Biden actually did in order to get it for him. There was no there was no corruption that happened here. So what Joni Ernst said is Joe Biden should be very careful what he's asking for, because, you know, we have a situation where if it should ever be President Biden, then immediately people right after the day he would be elected will be saying, well, we're going to impeach him. Oh, my gosh. So threaten slash bribe Ukrainian officials. Not impeachable. No, not impeachable. Being the dad of someone who works in the Ukraine. Totally impeachable. Totally Totally go for the impeachment. Absolutely unacceptable. How could you, (laughs) Biden? Yeah. Well, anyway, good job being, making the most reasonable argument, Joni Ernst. And congratulations for being our asshat of the week. So on this show, we've talked a lot about the Democratic candidates. We've talked a lot about how problematic Trump is. But the question that's lingering in everyone's mind and that we've talked a little bit about is, you know, whether the Democrats can beat Trump. And one thing that they're going to have to overcome in order to do that is structural inequality between the parties in our voting electorate system. So Nathan, why don't you start us off? Well, today we want to talk a little bit about the Electoral College is one example. So the Electoral College, the reason why President Trump is President Trump and not Hillary Clinton, who got like two, three million more votes than him. You know, I thought it was really interesting after Trump got elected. It felt like I felt like all of my Republican friends on Facebook suddenly became experts in the history of the Electoral College and why we have the Electoral College. So I actually have a degree in political science. So let's talk about why the Electoral College actually exists, why it continues to exist, why it's problematic that it continues to exist, and how we can act, there's actually a practical way for us to effectively get rid of it. So first off, let's talk about the history of the Electoral College. So back when the government was being formed, when the United States was being created, people had to come up with how we were going to be choosing our president. Now, there were a few different camps in uh, camps of thought when it came to deciding how the president, the chief executive, would be chosen. First, there was the camp that thought, okay, we really, really don't want a strong centralized force. So we don't want Congress to be the ones that vote for the president, that come up with the president. And then there was another camp where they would like, were like, okay, um, I'm terrified of giving the average person all this power because if the average person has all this power, they might be uninformed. A lot of them live in rural areas. Ironically, the argument that everybody often uses about, oh, the Electoral College was made specifically to give people in rural areas more power, it was actually the exact opposite. People were, the the founding fathers were mistrustful of uh, rural communities, and they wanted to make sure that they had as little ability to choose the next president as possible. 
And then the third one, the third camp of idea, were was people that were afraid that a populist president could circumvent the elite and try to take their case directly to the people and thus break down certain conventions. So what this ended up translating to was a compromise in which the people wouldn't directly vote for the president, but what would happen was they would be chosen by a group of electors that were, that were uh, allocated by the state. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that specifically says that the states have to allocate electors in any specific way. It's just what has happened is that almost every single state has created a winner-take-all system in which they have their own presidential vote, and the winner of that in each state get all of the uh, electors, with the exception of Nebraska and Maine. So that's why it was originally the uh, it was originally created. Some other points to make for this. So a lot of people never actually thought that the electoral college would end up choosing most of the presidents because it is built in that if no president gets a if a president does not get a majority of the electoral votes, then the decision then goes to Congress, in which case it is decided based on the states and each state gets one vote. So at the end of the day, they didn't expect it to turn out the way it is right now at all. So the issue then came when the 12th Amendment got passed. So the 12th Amendment made it so presidents were allowed to choose their own vice presidents. Prior to this, the person who got second place would become the vice president. But because a president was allowed to choose their own vice president, this is the amendment that effectively created political parties. And now you had these national political party platforms, which made it so people were a lot more informed about, um, about national politics. So then the subject came up of, okay, if people are more informed about it and people are able to make more informed decisions, do we go ahead and get rid of the Electoral College? But no, they didn't want to do that because of slave states. You see, the slave states had extra electoral votes because they had slaves who counted as three-fifths of a person. This allowed them to have significantly more representation within the government. In fact, Virginia, the state where Michael and I are from, had because of their population of 200,000 slaves, they had a total of 12 electoral votes, which at the time was a quarter of the amount needed to win the presidency, which was 46 electoral votes. And because of that, for the first 36 years of the formation of the country, 32 of them had a Virginian be the president of the United States. Now, I remember learning about that in elementary school and thinking, oh, yeah, that's a point of pride. No, it's because of slaves. Six Semper Tyrannus. <laughs> yeah. So southern states did not want to give up that in advantage. So we kept it in place because of slaves. And so the Electoral College then basically allowed for a single vote in a slaveholding state to be more than one vote cast. And so it's important for us to call out, you know, why, like how many electoral votes a state gets to kind of show the bias that's in place here. So a state gets the number of electoral votes equal to their combined um, number of representatives in Congress. 
So that's two senators, which is equal for all the states. And then a number of House members proportionate to the number, the population of that state based on the most recent census. That means that states with lower voting populations have more power per vote because they have the same number of senators as a huge state. And so what you end up having is that more rural states on a per person basis have more power, more influence, and more representation. To put that into perspective, in Wyoming, 142,741 votes equal one electoral vote. In California, 508,344 votes equal one electoral vote. Which means that a vote in Wyoming means roughly almost four times what a vote in California means. Exactly. So it's completely, it's a completely unfair distribution. Now, the argument often is, well, but the reason why we have an electoral college, nowadays the argument is, this wasn't the original argument, but let's assume, let's give this one credit. The argument is, well, now you have all these rural states, and during a presidential campaign, presidents are just going to ignore all of those rural states because uh, the population is in the bigger states. This is a terrible argument for several reasons. The first reason why it's a terrible argument is because the assumption that you can only win with a coalition built up of people in the bigger cities is just false. So as it stands, approximately 27% of people live in urban communities. 52% live in suburban communities, and 21% live in rural communities. So the idea that you can only appeal to voters by going to the big cities and just campaigning there and appealing to them is just flawed, because that only accounts for 27% of the population. You do need a diverse coalition of voters that are made up of rural voters, of suburban voters, and urban voters, because you're not going to get a majority with just those big city people. Reason number two why that's a terrible argument. People don't actually visit those states that have disproportionate power because the way our system is set up, it's a winner-take-all system. And there are only about 12 states in which we don't automatically know what the results are gonna be. So in 2016, two-thirds of all campaign events happened in six states. 94% of campaign events took place in 12 states. So Wyoming, we just brought up Wyoming. Zero events. Montana, another very rural state. Zero events. Idaho, very rural state. Zero events. North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, zero events. California, one event. They have a population of... 39.56 million people. More than many, many countries in the world. And they had one event. New Hampshire, a swing state, has a population of 1.356 million people. And they had 21 campaign events. Because let's be clear about what winner-take-all means. Winner-take-all means that 
it matters the exact same amount if you get 51% of the vote as it does if you get 99 or 100% of the vote. It means as soon as you make, break that threshold and you're sure about it, it matters zero amount. <laughs> So if you live in most of those rural states, you're not getting that attention anyway because they are focusing primarily on the states that are the swing states, which are primarily the six states and a little bit of uh, some of the 12 that are kind of lean. So, so that whole argument that people are going to ignore most of the country, they're already doing that. So at the end of the day, you get more equal representation if you just have a popular vote, which is what the 50 other 58 other countries with presidential like systems where the president is both the head of the state and the government do. So if a person receives the most votes, they become the president. Yeah, it's pretty reasonable to me. And if you are saying if you if you are one that believes that we should keep the Electoral College in place, just so you know, just to be clear, you are saying that it's OK if the person who wins is not the person that got the most votes. One other thing that I will say is so back in 2016, there were a lot of people that told me specifically, oh, you only hate the Electoral College because it caused your candidate to lose. So I will go ahead and say right now, if in the future, if a Democratic president becomes president because they won the Electoral College, but not the popular vote, I will say they should not be president. Now, and if I change my view, if I change my view based on who won, if in the future I change that my view, mark my words now, I am a hypocrite, I'm a shyster, I'm a charlatan, I'm a hack, and call me out for that because I will deserve it. Because ultimately, this is about the principle of democracy. Now, there are a lot of people that try to use the red herring of, oh, well, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. Well, yeah, we live in a republic. Which we support and say all the time. Exactly. But because we live in a republic, that means that we have laws that establish who is in power. So in that realm, there actually is a practical way in which we can effectively repeal the Electoral College. There's this campaign... It's referred to as the national popular vote. And the way this works, so we mentioned earlier that the Constitution does not actually um, say specifically how states have to uh, proportion their votes. That's why you have, yeah, most of them are winner-take-all states, but you also have Maine and Nebraska that work a little bit differently. So what the national popular vote is, it's, is, it's a coalition of states that agree to give all of their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. And what that means, and it doesn't take effect until enough enough states have contributed enough electoral votes to equal 270 electoral votes. So what that means is that whoever wins the popular vote would get which would win the electoral college because that is the way these states have decided to proportion their electoral votes now as it stands and this doesn't take effect until it hits uh 270 as it stands there are already 196 electoral votes promised to it we only need 74 more electoral votes right now california colorado connecticut dc delaware hawaii illinois maryland maine New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington 
have already committed to it. And there have been proposals in several other states in order to do this as well. In fact, there's actually a proposal in the state of Virginia, which might actually have a chance of passing now that Democrats have actually have taken control, which, you know, side note, if you voted in uh, Virginia, your vote mattered because there are ways in which it is making an actual difference. So if you want to learn more about this movement, uh, go to popular nationalpopularvote.com. This would effectively get rid of the Electoral College without needing a constitutional amendment. It is practical, and we only need 74 more electoral votes in order to get there. Man, that is pretty inspiring. And given the tremendous inequality in power that results from the Electoral College that we've illustrated, that could be just a tremendous victory for representative Republican democracy in the United States. So when like we first, when Nathan and I first started talking about the Electoral College, I was like, I don't know, like, is it really that big of a deal? Maybe this is just a red herring. But no, it's like so clearly an antiquated, strange, convoluted system that actually doesn't do any good and is exceedingly outdated. Yeah, it is so far deviated from its intended... Uh, from its original intention, which, and you could argue that its original intention was kind of nefarious. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it's not even like a practical basis anymore. There's just no reason why it makes sense to apportion votes for the president of the United States, a position that should almost definitely be popularly elected, especially in our modern conception. So like back in the day, when states mattered a whole heck of a lot because of dual federalism, because of the way we approached our government was as a collection of independent states that then contributed to a federal whole, it made a lot more sense to give the states more influence and power as entities and divide up the people in those states proportionally. Now we're a much more federalist federal system. The states are administrative bodies. The states are, you know, subordinated governing bodies but they are nowhere near the level of um the level of importance that they were towards the founding of our country and so the fact that they would stand between the popular vote of their people and the presidency just makes zero sense let's do our highlights all right so my highlight this week um Bree and I got our apartment more ha packed up, and I'm super psyched to be packed and ready to go skiing out west for the first time ever. So that's my big thing this week. My highlight is that I'm no longer sick. Um, I, I taught my class today, and I was actually conscious while I was doing it, and that was nice. Oh, and I actually I ran into one of my former students from last semester who told me that uh, he was listening to the podcast the other day. Oh, awesome. So um, because of FERPA, I can't say what his name was, but you know who you are. It was good to see you, man. Keep listening. Good deal. All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening in. We really appreciate it. And uh, Nathan and Jess, will you talk to you next week? Bye.